You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded whores. Hi, lovelies. Welcome back to 50 Plus a Tip. I'm your host, Danica. And I'm Riley. And today we are sitting down with the lovely Andrea Warhan. She's a writer, performer, producer, publisher, and sex worker. She wrote the sex work memoir art book, Modern Whore, a Memoir, published by Penguin Random House Canada, and co-wrote, produced, and starred in the award-winning short film adaptations, Modern Whore, and Last Night at the Strip Club. She has produced, co-written, and co-starred in the short film Thriving, Dissociated Reverie, which made its debut at the Sundance Film Festival in 2023 about a black, non-binary sex worker with dissociative identity disorder. She's currently the bimbo-in-chief of Literal Bimbos, a do-it-yourself or DIY zine made by and for sex workers. We are so excited to sit down with Andrea today. We absolutely love the book Modern Whore and can't wait to check out her other works. And you guys are going to love her. Awesome, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to have you. The first question here, for those that are familiar with you or your book, which we highly recommend everyone reading, how long have you been in sex work and which avenues have you worked in? Ooh, so I've been on and off in the industry for the last 12, going on 13 years. Um, though cumulatively, I guess it would be like more like seven years. Um, but yeah, I started off as an agency escort and then I took a break and then I got into stripping, which I did for three years. Um, and now I'm an OnlyFans creator. So dabbled in a little bit yeah. of everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, just a little dabbling. How did you first get into the industry? Well, I needed money, <laughs> you know. <laughs> A tale as old as time. Mm, I've been working minimum wage jobs in the service industry, um, particularly at cafes and restaurants, where I started to notice as a 20, 21-year-old that I could make more money if I was showing a bit more cleavage. And it's not like the biggest leap to recognize that you have a physical attribute that can make you more money when you're working in the service industry to look at say stripping and be like I feel like I could do that and I think that could be a lot of fun um so the way that I sort of got introduced to the idea is I went to a strip club for the first time um and was absolutely blown away by what I saw and the performances and the type of joy and creative expression that I witnessed firsthand as an audience member and the fact that an audience member would have an opportunity to have this private connection with the performer afterward and that's how the dancer would be able to make her money and so I spent a year doing a lot of research into stripping specifically in Toronto and then basically I had a friend who I expressed this desire to become a stripper. And she was like, why don't you become an escort instead? It's better money. You're better protected. And no one's going to find out that you're doing it. You know, whereas like at a strip club, anyone could walk in and find out that, surprise, you're a stripper. And so I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about it. I really wanted to perform, but it became clear to me the more research I did that 
I think escorting was the right choice for me. And so I called up an agency and pretty quickly got a job and started working. You know, she's not wrong <laughs> that uh, it's better money, more protection, <laughs> which I think people from the outside world would be like, what? But we were both like nodding along going, yep. <laughs> Although I will disagree. I mean, depending on how your photos are like advertised on escorting agencies, you can definitely excellently get hired by someone you know. Like I've told the story on the podcast, um, me and this guy that I was seeing at the time, like hired a... Um, like a happy ending massage. And as soon as like the two women walked into the room, I like locked eyes with one and I had gone to primary school with her. So. <laughs> it totally it happens. Like, yeah, it was just like, well, it's the mutual understanding. You're the seller, I'm the buyer, it's fine. <laughs> Have you ever um, like been hired by someone without either party knowing? that other one was going to be there? I can't say that that's happened, but I've definitely had situations where people who knew me booked me without telling me or showed up at the strip club without telling me. Like, you know, guys who had crushes on me in high school showing up and becoming clients, you know, that kind of thing, which yeah. like it doesn't really work in the long term, I find. Because in the end, that's not, they don't, they don't want, they don't want to spend money. They want you for free. And they're yeah. hoping that like by spending money that eventually you're going to be okay with giving it away for free. And it just does not work that way. And nay, nay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I have been hired by an ex's like best friend um, before. And I think it's the funniest thing because I like obviously didn't know. And then I came there and I was like, didn't you constantly tell him to break up with me? <laughs> it's very interesting. Well, here we are. <laughs> and now we know why. Yeah. You wanted me to yourself. <laughs> exactly. I overpriced lap dances for me. <laughs> nay, nay, underpriced. <laughs> um, so out of the avenues of sex work that you have dabbled in, which have been your favorite and which have been your least favorite? That's a tough one because I, I I find it's an industry where like at least the three forms of sex work that I've done, I feel like I could find something to love about all of them. I loved stripping. I loved uh, the workplace environment, a sex work workplace um, where you have this like localized location. You have like your friends that you work with, um, you know, you have like staff that you're friendly with, you have the performance element, there is a sense of protection with security, that kind of thing. I really loved going to work when I really loved the people I was working with, but that's not always the case, of course. Um, but the period that I worked, I worked with some incredible people that I love and like, I'm still very close to today. I would say like agency escorting is one of those sometimes like necessary gateways that you leave behind because you just don't have the type of autonomy that you can get from other forms of sex work. Like when you work independently, I understand the value of having an agency 
um, pretty much do all the administrative work for you. Advertising, booking clients, screening, um, driving you to calls, protecting you um, should anything happen. Um, You know, you pick up the money, you leave, and that's that. But you also, you're taking a serious pay cut for doing a form of labor that if you did it independently, you could be making a lot more. And you could also have a lot more control over who you're seeing. So I would say like agency work is something like I personally would not return to. Um, I'm glad that I did it. Uh, I had no shame whatsoever about it. It was a very like important and formative like time in my life. But yeah, that's that's going to be a no for me. Uh, when you're doing agency work like that, how much autonomy do you have? Are they just kind of like, hey, you have a call at three o'clock. They're going to drop you off here. Go do it. Or do you get to be like, well, what do you look like? And, you know, what positions does he like? And <laughs> no. no, you don't get to know any of that stuff. I mean, you might if the like the person who's booking the call or the agency owner is feeling maybe generous, they can give you a few more details about like who this person is, but you're not going to get anywhere the sort of detail of like, you know, who is this person on a like personal level or like, what are they like in bed? You don't get any of those details. Um, and like, yeah, you don't, I think like you can say no and agencies do have blacklists. However, Blacklists are very controversial, I think, at at agencies because depending where you're at, it's entirely possible that you can put somebody on your blacklist, but that person's not going to be put on anyone else's blacklist. And so if that person's an abusive predator, um, he's still being granted the possibility of of seeing other escorts um, at the agency, which personally I think is quite wrong. You know, I think if someone's blacklisted for one, uh, they should be blacklisted for everyone. Um, but it, it doesn't quite work that way. And I had a situation that I write about in the book where somebody was on my blacklist and then the agency's servers crashed along with everyone's blacklist, which is just like a terrifying situation. And so when I got booked for this call, I just happened to recognize the address of where I'd be dropped off. And I called the booker and was like, is this this person. Um, and if so, I'm absolutely not going to go see them. And like the, the reaction of the person on the phone was like, ha ha ha. Everyone says that about this guy. That's so funny. It's like, (laughs) he's like absolutely sociopathic and like very, very dangerous. Um, but yeah, like it was a big funny, funny joke that he had been blacklisted from every agency that she had done the calls for. So again that's sort of that's an agency thing unfortunately yeah uh so you talk about this in your book a little bit um but for the listeners who haven't read yet um what made you move from escorting to stripping and then stripping to now only fans so I got out of escorting because I told my mom six months into the job and She, on the day that I graduated university, which was a year into escorting, she said, when are you going to quit that job yours? And I said, okay, fine, a year. And I gave myself a little exit strategy. And she said, great, I'll get that in writing. So I signed a contract with my mom with a date of when I would be leaving escorting. 
And I stayed true to that. I quit by the date and then for a couple of years tried to be normal and work a nine to five job. I secured my first salary position, was crying every single day. It was uh, an absolute nightmare. And I quit that job. I started working as a bike courier in the middle of the winter because I craved labor that, you know, I could pick my own schedule. I could use my body to make money um, and sort of work on my own terms, like make money according to like how hard I worked, which is basically like how you make money as a sex worker. So I was trying to find that in other forms of labor just to sort of like appease my mom. (laughs) And then... Um, after getting nearly doored for the 10th time, I thought to myself, what's more dangerous in this city, being a bike courier or being a stripper? (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) then I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just like put this like $400 license fee on my credit card and just see how this goes. And that's what started off, um, dancing for me. And then as far as like why I've gotten into OnlyFans, it's one of those things where when I started talking to people about maybe doing it, they were like, oh, you don't have one already? You know, like I kind of, uh, I was being thirsty on the gram for free, which is kind of embarrassing (laughs) when like you don't have a conduit to like actually capitalize on your nudes as a sex worker. So it kind of made sense for me to... Yeah, like put a price on it, like start setting it up. And so I launched it on my birthday in November of last year. And so I'm I'm like six, almost seven months in to my career as a content creator. Um, and it's really tough, but it's also pretty rewarding at the same time. So yeah, that's where I'm at now. We just spoke to a friend of ours who does very well in OnlyFans and um, having been in-person sex workers, it's a it's a hard jump to be online. Mm-hmm. It, your whole sales is different. Your whole tactic, your whole speech, everything, for me at least, feels very different. Um, and uh, I was saying to Riley, like, I really just want someone to call me up on a Monday and say, these are the photos and the videos I need. Get this done. Like, <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, the, the whole uh, different beast to tackle online mm-hmm. sex work. It's like a mad problem. It's so hard, but it is worth it, especially if you already have a pre-existing platform. It's kind of like it's waiting for you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like the money's there. You just have to like put in the work of like educating yourself on how to like fully capitalize on that. And I still don't really know how to do that. Um, like I make enough on there that I like, can pay my rent and save some money and like it's I make enough to make it worth it for me um and that's enough for me I was going at a very very fast clip there for the first six months where I was posting photos uh Monday to Friday um I was posting a new erotica every single week like fresh like new idea every single Thursday. And then on Fridays, I would post a video of me reading that story while taking my top off. And so love that. Yeah. that's, that's how I was able to sort of like 
maintain a pretty solid base and like keep them there. But really just a few weeks ago, I, I kind of burnt out. It was a combination of burnout and um, other writing opportunities that arose that forced me to recalibrate and change my approach with the OnlyFans. And so I'm not posting every day anymore and I'm not doing the story. I'm like sort of, I've let them all know that I'm taking a little break and like they can go if they want and then come back in a couple months. And then if like people want to stick around, I promise I'm going to like do more explicit stuff. I just like, I need some time. Mama needs a break. And I, you know, I have other things that I need to work on and then I'll be back. So, so far that's worked and I haven't actually lost anyone. I've actually like gained more subs. So I think there's something to be said about figuring out a way to go at your own pace rather than at a pace you think that you have to go because people have told you like, if you don't post every day, you'll never succeed. It's not, it's not true. Mm-hmm. I agree. I find that was one thing too, when I was doing um, cam work and OnlyFans too, because it's not a make and board brick and mortar place, make and border, <laughs> brick and mortar place that you're going to, you leave that you clocking clocked out. I found it hard to put the time aside and then be able to like log off. And like, I found like I burned out really fast when I first started. Cause I was like, I felt like I always had to be available. I always have to be answering messages. Um, so I can, I can uh, sympathize with like the burnout of like going hard six months and then be like, okay, wait, I need to reevaluate this. <laughs> totally. So when you first started working um, back to the back to the brothel, um, when you first started there, you were quite young. Um, is there anything you wish you had known about sex work before you started, or advice you would have given to your younger self? So just to clarify, I worked for an out call agency strictly, so we never had like a an in call location, um, which actually was quite isolating because I never really got to meet my coworkers unless it was in the car being driven to respective appointments or on the occasion that we were doing a duo and meeting for the first time to fuck a client. Um, (laughs) Always fun meet and greet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would probably tell my younger self that um, boundaries are really important and to stick to your guns and when you feel uncomfortable make that very clear and know that you can always leave at any time and that you don't owe anyone anything just because they've given you money consent can be withdrawn at any time in the process of doing an appointment um but yeah I mean I think I'm like I'm pretty proud of the way that I pulled it off as like a 21 year old until I was 23 because I, I wrote everything down. So smart. And that was, that was the gift. That was the gift I gave myself. And sometimes I would come home at like three in the morning after doing like five appointments back to back. And I would open up my computer and I would record just with my voice, like all the different clients I saw. And so that in the end became the foundation of modern horror were these recordings that I'd made or like even poems, you know, that I would write, you know, sitting on a patio in between calls, waiting for another appointment, you know, I would be drinking a beer and writing a poem about, you know, one of my clients and like all of these little pieces became 
the foundation of a larger work. I love that. I know my girlfriend's always bugging me and being like, you need to write a memoir. And I'm like, girl, I can barely remember yesterday. I can't remember all the people. I mean, I'm like 19, so it hasn't been that long. (laughs) And then thankfully I have the podcast where we rehash all the horrors and horrors of our work. So for sure. And it, it feels like it can feel so mundane to write down uh, these stories because it's our work and it's so normal to us. Um, but I guess, yeah, like, and, and I think the podcast is a wonderful way of preserving this time in your life and like preserving these stories, these oral histories. Um, because otherwise, like I have a philosophy, which is that if I don't write it down, I am choosing not to remember. Mm. So like it's really important to me when I have these like big life experiences that I have to like run to my journal and just document it so that I have something solid to like return to. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a podcast is like also a totally perfect way to do that. It's definitely a PG version. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd write the X-rated version down somewhere. (laughs) So in your book, and as you kind of previously mentioned as well, um, you talked about coming out as a prostitute to your parents and your mom and you signing a contract that would mark the end of your whoring days. Um, what advice would you give to listeners about coming out to friends and family and how to handle any backlash or contract signing with your parents? I'm just going to interrupt quickly. Do you prefer the term full service sex worker or are you comfortable with the term prostitute? Both work for me. Okay, I, I think like, among friends in the industry, we can call each other prostitutes. Um, I kind of like I kind of like prostitute. Yeah, it totally works for me. Um, my advice would be: first of all, you don't have to. You don't have to come out. First and foremost, um, there are really serious implications, lifelong implications to coming out, and I don't think it's fair for anyone to feel pressure to kind of like blow up their lives with a truth bomb like I'm a prostitute I think it's like a very serious thing that requires a lot of reflection and so that would be my first piece of of, of advice like don't don't do it if you don't feel comfortable and safe to do it take a really long time to think about what the implications might be. This is information that can impact your ability to get housing. It will impact your ability to find a partner. It will impact your relationships with all your friends and family. It will likely impact your ability to gain employment in the future. Um, And if all of those risks feel worth it, absolutely go for it. It's a beautiful, it can be a beautiful thing to be out in the open as your fullest self without any shame. That's the gamble that you're taking, but it doesn't always work that way. And, and you have to be able to come to terms with um, the possibility that, that things could go pretty horribly wrong. Like, especially if you're a mother with children, like you could lose custody of your children by coming out. So it's like, this is not, it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, 
However, if you're in a position where you feel like, I think I can do it, like I can say, speaking for myself, I've always considered myself an artist and a writer. And for me, telling the truth and being myself is of the utmost importance. And I'm willing to take on the risks um, because I think it all sort of contributes to my perspective that I bring to the table and I want to be as authentic as possible. But artists can take those types of risk. You know, I'm not like, I'm not someone in the corporate world or like I'm not losing anything um, by coming out necessarily. Although I can, I can easily lose my ability to travel around the world if it ever gets connected to my passport. You know, like that's still a risk for me. Um, and there is major risks of being face out, legal name out like I am. And there are consequences that I have not yet experienced that will arise out of that disclosure. Um, so <laughs> I admit I'm like honestly a little bit nervous about that myself, but I've, I've made my bed and I will sleep in it and jump around in it for as long as I can until I'm <laughs> taken away. Um, but yeah, I would say like start with your closest people and see what they say. And if it feels like it's something that you can disclose and feel safe and comfortable, you know, doing like once, don't forget that coming out is this like constant everyday process. Like before you know it, you start with like your closest friends, then you tell your family. And then all of a sudden you're telling your dentist, you know, you're, it's just like, there's always more and more people to, to tell your truth to. Um, and if you're willing to go on that journey, it's quite a wild ride. And I, I do recommend it. I, I echo everything you've said. You really do um, have to think about it. Is it worth, worth it to you as an individual? Um, is the fallout something you're willing to take on and you don't, you're not obligated to either. Like this is your personal life. You don't have to share that. Um, so I think there's, there's pros and cons to both sides. I, when I was, when I, I started about a decade ago now, so I was very young. <laughs> and, and, um, I was just always been such an unapologetically me kind of person that I was like, I'm going to start stripping. I don't give a fuck about anything. Like I'm going to tell people that I'm a stripper. I have no embarrassment about it. Um, in hindsight, uh, would I have been so loud and proud? Um, maybe quietly proud. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, very individualized um, situation. I think if you want to come out or not. For sure. And, and like, examining motivations too because you know this idea of like being the face of sex work and like you know wanting to be out there as someone who can like help challenge those narratives trust me been there but the more sex workers I meet and the more like you know deeper I get into this industry and like the deeper my relationships are with the people around me who have done all this work it's like Every single one of us is different. There is no one face to this. There is no one voice. There is no one story. And as much as like there's people like us who, you know, aren't addicted to drugs and like, you know, sort of counter that like narrative, there are people who are addicted to drugs, who are down and out, who are having like really terrible times. And the thing is like, we don't need to like discard those narratives and those people in order to like appease the mainstream, you know, like- 100%. It's, it's like, 
we just were all in this together and and it's so important when we're on this journey of like starting to tell our stories to yeah examine what it is behind that desire you know because if if it's ego driven and it's about like sort of upholding a sort of vision of ourselves as the hero of the story it can get a little problematic and again i know that from experience <laughs> definitely um so in your book modern horror you talked about being cali sober post-concussion um and but not all clients were supportive of that um i was sober for the better part of six years and um i i often had to like fake drink at things otherwise they either didn't want to get dances from me they didn't want to sit and like hang out with me um even though me in quotes drunk and me honestly sober was the same person <laughs> um so you said to yourself you know you noticed a lot of clients weren't supportive um you know one said that it was an eight dollar water and they're like i'm not buying you an eight dollar water okay um <laughs> you've also mentioned you would have had trouble doing the job completely sober can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, I I had been drinking when I started working, and I noticed that I was drinking upwards of, like, 10 to 15 drinks per shift because can I get you a drink is a client's opening line. So I was drinking a lot. I was making good money being a drunk stripper. Uh, lots of fun, you know, very extroverted, uh, very confident, you know, very much able to go up to, you know, groups of men and be like, you know, razzle dazzle them. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then, yeah, like, uh, I guess it was maybe a year and a half into stripping. I... Um, was drunk, got on my bike, um, got into a pretty severe accident and uh, got this concussion that changed my life. And one of the things that I did after the concussion was I stopped drinking and I was cleared by my concussion doctor to smoke weed as a way of managing my symptoms. Uh, and I'd already basically been a stoner for many years. So that was very like welcome news. And <laughs> Um, when I went back to work six weeks after the accident, it became necessary for me to be able to smoke weed at work because being, uh, in my lingerie, <laughs> having to entertain these guys without any lubrication, um, like just raw dogging reality was far too difficult. <laughs> it was so hard. Um, and I, I was finding like when I would get stoned, I would just like find the customers more interesting. I'd find our conversation, you know, and I could like just chill and relax, but my hustle entirely tanked and I stopped really making that much money. And I was just hanging out in the smoking room and having great conversations with my coworkers. And that became like kind of my primary reason for coming to work was just like hanging out it wasn't great for making money. Um, I had good times. It was very chill, but, um, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard one to do fully sober, but not impossible. Lots of people can do it. 
you know, but yeah, the, the sort of like reactions that I was getting from men when I would refuse to take a drink was so eye opening because it became clear that part of the appeal of the strip club is that these customers sort of see you as, um, almost like a priestess, like a dark priestess. Like you're there to like take them into the darkness, take them into the underworld where they're like, they're having a midlife crisis and they're binging and, you know, they're getting drunk and they're high on various things. And like, you're supposed to be there kind of holding their hand through it and you're going on this like wild adventure with them. But if you're not down to participate on the same level as they are, oh, they have no interest in you whatsoever. And, you know, they'll move on to the next person. That's no big deal. Like I'm, I've always been more of a relationship sex worker anyway, where, you know, it's based on conversation and mutual respect and that kind of thing, which I think in the long term can make me more money because I develop regulars. But, you know, in the short term, you, you get a you get far fewer customers that way. It's yeah. very true. We kind of have, like, I mean, me and Danica work together all the time. And, like, I'm much more of the, like, girlfriend experience. And she's much more of the, like, porn star experience. So. Perfect. So, yin and yang thing we got going on, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I do not give a fuck about your life. Like, <laughs> really. Like, I'm hot. I have big fucking boots. Let's focus on the big important things here. Exactly. Yeah, like I remember I went into the washroom once at the club and one of the dancers was like, ew, I see you. You talk to them. Was it me? Do we work together? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) You know, different hustles, different styles, right? Like, that's what I love about the industry. We're not all the same. We all have different approaches and and we do what works for us. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's not like I joke that I'm like a cunt and I like can't handle people and I hate like caring about anyone, which is a joke for the most part. <laughs> but it's more so like for me, it's just way too mentally and emotionally taxing to have authentic conversations with people. Like I have clients I've had for like six plus years where I know everything about their kids, their wife, like everything, right? And I generally give a fuck about them. But to go through the club and be like, that giving that much of me I personally couldn't handle it so I do like admire people that can sit with people and talk to them for a while and like get those genuine connections um I just know like that's just not the hustle that works for me also I think like looks wise plays a big role if you have the girl next door look people are going to seek you out for those general connections and if you have 30 triple h's like I do (laughs) they don't really care what's coming out of your mouth too much (laughs) more about what's going in it yeah I mean I always like to sell like champagne rooms so like I don't know if I could do the porn star persona for like an hour you know like I always admired people who could sell champagne rooms I never did that I I really did not make that much money (laughs) (laughs) I know I had a great time though um yeah no champagne rooms are hard sell um we like it's like the highlight of our life is doing champagne rooms because we usually book them together so it's really just us fucking around in a champagne room having fun yeah. like we've like there's had- a guy also there oh yeah then we forget that he's there we're like oh shit what did you get here 
I love that. Money. Um, <laughs> but we've like notoriously get weird in champagne rooms and not even like in a sexy way. We'll like play hide and seek and play tag. And they're like, why are you so much for this? Or we'll, like sit crisscross applesauce. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did a champagne room a while ago and this guy was like having so much fun with us, but he would try and like get touchy with us and then would sort of like leap out of his way and so he thought we were playing tag and then trying to show us his breakdance moves and like smoke to get on the ground so we were like okay it's time to sit down <laughs> just sit on your bum <laughs> I love that like a lot of a lot of in-person sex work is either you're a naked therapist or you're a naked babysitter. Like those are the two roles you play. Absolutely. 100%. I love this industry. Exactly. Well, people want to feel like silly and weird. Like it's an outlet. Yeah. So um, kind of back on a more serious note, you talked about a, customer and I'm going to follow your lead and not say who they were um who had your boundaries like pushed a bit far and when you were on the phone with the new call girl or booker she you know laughed when she said that this person had been blacklisted um how if even possible can you advocate for yourself and other sex workers when navigating like disrespectful or dangerous clients when working under management Uh, that's a big big question and it's so incredibly hard in sex work to advocate for yourself against management when you don't have any job security when you're in the closet Um, those two factors alone, the risk of losing your job and the risk of being outed will have sex workers tolerating terrible situations just to survive and stay as safe as possible. So that's, that's an excellent question. And I I don't necessarily have an answer for it because (laughs) it's hard out there when you're working in a legal gray area or in a clear area of criminality, right? Like what are we supposed to do in, in situations of worker exploitation? We don't get to like, who do we report to? There's no HR, you know, there's no policy on sexual harassment in the workplace or there's no complaints procedure. Um, The way these agencies and other sex work workplaces like strip clubs are run unfortunately there are it's just they're run in such a way that that management can get away with anything unchallenged unless you are willing to put your neck out there and risk your job and risk being outed and that's a really that's an awful work situation to be in full stop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the best ways sort of in a long-term way of combating this type of like workplace exploitation is by starting our own agencies or, you know, opening our own strip clubs, our own workplaces with these values baked in right from the beginning. But in the short term, 
you know, all we can really do is protect each other. All we can do is tell each other our stories and warn each other about sketchy people, sketchy agencies, sketchy management, and and hope that nobody else has to go through what we've been through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You actually made a comment in, I mean, I don't know how to tell you, like, you don't know. Um, <laughs> if you remember, you made a comment <laughs> in your book, uh, Modern Horror, which I'm going to keep plugging. Um, and you said, uh, the worst thing that happens when a client is extorted by a sex worker is that they lose their money. The worst thing that happens when a sex worker is extorted by a client is that she loses her life. And I think that you kind of touched on it there, you know, that you are operating in a legal gray area. There are terrible things that can happen to you and unfortunately very little repercussions for them. So you do sometimes have, feel the need that you can't, you can't voice when issues happen or, or advocate for yourself in a safe way because you're going to, like you said, put your fucking neck out there and you may lose your job. Like it, it's one of those, it's one of the rare industries where you really have no, like no HR, no one advocating for you. Um, and we've seen it a lot where like women advocate for themselves and now they're not in the industry anymore or they've been blacklisted from all the clubs. And it's so fucking unfortunate. Um, and I think that's someone, something that people don't, um, don't fully understand when they're not in the industry. I've heard so many times, like, why didn't you, if that client ripped you off, why didn't you say something? It's like, and what? <laughs> like, what, call the cops? Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately unless you get like a good club that really has your back and there are a few a few managers or a few um you know bookers that will look after you and take care of you um we just need more of them mm-hmm. um also in your book go <laughs> <laughs> on you thought i liked it uh there was this part in the chapter where he said there's no monogamy in the strip club and that's something that for clubs that often have house girls, you see that a lot where they have regulars that come in and see them. It's known that that's a regular. And then you see a new girl come in and she's like, do, 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 <laughs> over to the regular. <laughs> and then you never see her again. No, I'm just <laughs> but it happens where like you have a regular and then you kind of, it's funny because it seems to be only okay one way where regulars like get butt hurt when you, go talk to someone else at the club, but then you almost don't get to be like, well, then you're mine also. And you don't get to talk to the other dancers. Um, it's this weird, like one way monogamy sometimes or expectations, which always drives me crazy. Um, but when it does happen, how do you handle when a regular you have a really good client of yours starts seeing someone else in the club? Uh, I mean, so like, I talk about in that story about how like in my real life, I'm, I'm in an open relationship. And so in that, in, in my relationship, you know, as, as a woman, I am, I, I feel more uh, queries as it were than my partner does. And, but I remember the first time that he went out with someone and it was, so terrifying for me, even though I had done it myself a million times and was like, you know, me seeing other people doesn't change how much I love my partner. When he did it for the first time, it was so heartbreaking. And so when it happened to me in the club with this like prolific regular I had who had been seeing me like every Wednesday for years at this point, 
to see him or like the thing about that situation is that I didn't I didn't see him do this. It was other dancers who were coming to me and saying, I know he's your guy. I know he's your guy, but he asked me for a dance. Is that okay? Also, I did go up for a dance with him. <laughs> like, yeah. that, I did it. <laughs> it's not a question. I, yeah, I did it. Um, and of course I'm like, yeah, money's money. You have to, you have to do it. But like, uh, it definitely stung. It hurt. It totally hurt. Um, but then I, I, after like talking to him and just sort of like laying it out, and realizing like where my insecurities were coming from, because like often at the end of the day, it's just that you don't want to lose your regular, you know, you have like a very easy stream of, of regular income coming in. You don't want to lose it, but you also have like a relationship with these people. And so like, you don't want to lose the relationship either, but it's primarily about the money and (laughs) we know, (laughs) but then I, I realized that like, Basically, this this particular client was um, what he'd learned from me was that if he wanted to spend time with dancers in the club, he had to pay for their time, right? And like, so I was at the time quite a popular dancer, and so he would come and like wait for me sometimes for like hours, and then he just didn't feel like being alone for that that time, and so he started talking to other people and understood that it was important to pay them. And so the result in the end was that we all got paid instead of just me. And to me, that's a happy ending. Yeah. I think like, I think it's just sometimes it's hard. Like, like well, their money is going to someone else now, mm-hmm. not to me. Why? <laughs> you know? Like it's not, I mean, some girls get it where it's like an insecurity about their looks or whatever. Like you said, for me, it's the money. Like I've put the time in for you to, you know, put my best face forward, smile, laugh your shitty jokes, get my regular pay <laughs> as I'm deserved. <laughs> and then now someone else gets it. Um, I've like experienced it once or twice in the club. And yeah, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow that like someone else is getting that income now. And it feels like you're getting cheated on. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And I felt like there was like um, an attack on my ego because this guy was known as Sophia's guy. You know, he was my guy. Like everyone knew it. Like the dancers didn't talk to him. They knew he was my guy. So yeah, it hurt. It felt like I was being knocked off my throne. But what I had to understand was that I wasn't being knocked off my throne. The throne was expanding and I got to sit there with other dancers as well. And yes, there was a little bit less for me and more shared, but that was okay because at least he was still coming to see me. Yeah. I think that's the way to, like when I bring Riley in with a regular mind, like, yes, I'll make less money, but it's okay. I get to help a friend as opposed to if he was like, and like shoved my face in his palm and then yeah, <laughs> moved over to someone else. I'd be like, well, fuck me then. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Some people are also like very protective about their regulars but like at the end of the day, we're all at work to make money and you can't just avoid people in the club because like if they're really a loyal regular, then it's on them to say no. But you can't like shoot yourself in the foot and avoid talking to people because they sometimes go for a dance with this person or like they only see this person. It's like, well, yeah, I think a lot of too, I've seen girls too, where it's like 
you're ruining the experience of the strip club for some people. Like, I've seen some girls will literally go up to guys like, don't you dare fucking talk to anyone about me. And then these guys are in a strip club and they, like, would look scared. And I'm like, you came to a strip club to have fun and now you're terrified of any girl looking at your direction because this woman's, like, threatened you. Like, some girls take it ways too far. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as much anymore, but it used to be back in the day like that. And I was like, this man is petrified coming to the strip club. This is not what this place is for. You crazy? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they do this, like, in, like, BC, but, like, at the club that I worked at, um, the way that dancer, dancers would sort of like mark their territory or their like their clients. <laughs> Golden challenge for everyone. I wish. Uh, do I? Um, <laughs> Unlock something. <laughs> Is it pee? Doesn't matter. No. Um, so, like basically, uh, like if a dancer was sitting with someone you know, you put your hanky down, your your ass rag on the seat. But say, like, the dancer had to go and do a stage show. She would leave her ass hanky sitting beside him. And that's supposed to be a signal to any other dancer walking by that this, this guy is claimed. The dancer's coming back. Do not try and steal him. And, like, I've seen dancers on stage yelling at other dancers for sitting with their regulars. <laughs> And it's like, this is a little over the top. Like this is, this is a man with his own free will. Like you cannot, I mean, you can, I guess, like if you're willing to make that kind of a little public demonstration of your allegiance to this one customer, but it's like, it's, it's a little, it's a little much. Yeah. It's an, it's an odd choice. It's yeah. an odd choice to yell at a customer across the room. Rebelling <laughs> is weird, but in clubs that you're literally forced to go on stage, I do understand, like, saving your seat because then you're, like, waiting for, like, other girls to go on stage to, like, poach their customers while they have to be up there. Like, yeah, that that's how I get, but the yelling is is not it. <laughs> no. I mean, look, you do you, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's It's all part of branding. Okay, so in your book, you have, (laughs) if you don't know, (laughs) I have printed out and put all over my wall, like a psycho, Uh, um, you met a customer at the club. Um, Are you okay with us naming the customer? Okay, so it was Max. Like I know him. <laughs> and you, re- you remember Max. You remember our Max. And um, he had invited you. You guys had shared a kind of connection over writing and literature and that. He had invited you to write at his home for a couple hours, paid time. And from the from what I read in the book, you had made it pretty clear, and him as well, that you know, sexual things were not gonna happen. It was really just paid to write there. And then lo and behold, you get there and he kind of invites you into his bedroom. And you're in a position where you just kind of like, how do I even like handle this? Like you, now you've been put in a position where under false pretenses, you were invited somewhere. And now these weird expectations have come up. And I think, um, and you know, after, afterwards you, you know, justifiably, you said you felt exposed and vulnerable. And I think as sex workers, I think I would boldly say most of us um, have felt like we've been in those positions. Uh, a customer acts like he's going to respect your boundaries and then abuses that trust, you know, inside or outside the club. Um, are there red flags 
that you could look for in those kind of customers where you might have some kind of indication that while they look cute and respectful now, given time, they're going to abuse that trust. Because even no matter how many years I've been in the industry, I've still caught myself from like, fuck, how did I not see that? Like, Oh my God. So I think, well, I'll just clarify that that situation happened when I was like a baby escort. And when I was still sort of like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed when it came to clients and like very trusting, I think by the time I was working at the strip club, I was a little bit more hardened by the industry. Um, But I think it's like really, um, you have to, you can trust your clients, but you have to keep in the back of your mind that it is entirely possible that they could murder you. No matter how much you like someone, you have to hold it as a possibility that they will betray you. And so you have to, there's like, there's a protocol, you know, if you're going to meet someone outside of the club or outside of the agency, which is, you know, where I met Max, like you have to set boundaries and anytime that someone pushes your boundaries even a little bit, anytime someone haggles you, anytime someone doesn't want to put money up front or pay a deposit, um, anytime it feels like they're trying to get something out of you that you you have not offered, that's got to be a flag, you know? And I, I found myself recently kind of slipping where basically somebody was offering me like very lavish gifts like, uh, you know, Louboutin shoes and like, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> no, uh, the answer is no, but I don't care. Cause I don't, they're, they're not, I don't know. They're, they're like a sex worker milestone. They're terrible to walk, walk in. I, Oh God, try so Kate on for an hour. Fuck that noise. But anyways, go on. <laughs> so basically this guy was offering me like all of these sort of like sex worker milestones and I was starting to feel myself like be open to doing this particular thing that he wanted to do um but when I like took a step back I realized that like doing what he was offering would compromise my safety in a major way and was too risky even though I was lured by the money and by the gifts and by the sort of like showy um, expressions of money, of wealth, of status. Like I think if, if, if somebody knows that they can kind of like lure you with, with things and with stuff, they can easily pull one over you and it, it can be very um, unnerving and you can put yourself into some pretty sketchy circumstances even if they don't understand why it's sketchy for you it's always important to be able to take a step back and like ideally if somebody's offering you something and you're unsure about it you have one person you know one person in the industry that you can talk to about it yeah if if there's a situation where you feel like not 100% certain if you have one friend in the industry that you can just like lay out the situation for get a second perspective because if it's too good to be true it probably is 
That's so funny. We just had an interview right before you. We cheated. And um, <laughs> that word for word, that's what she said. So if something's too good to be true, it is. And that's, it's so shitty because you hear about these like one in a million chances that a friend of yours had where, you know, he took us her to on the PJ and didn't even give her a hug and was super respectful and bought her all this shit and then sent her on her way. And it was amazing. And that could be you and it's never you. So <laughs> just like be wary of that. Um, another, another question kind of going back, um, going back on that one is if you are, if you kind of miss those red flags and you are in that situation, do you have any advice for how to handle it? You know, maybe you're alone with this person at their house or in a hotel and now your boundaries are getting a bit crossed or you're feeling like they're going to come up where it's going to be crossed. Any advice for how to, once you're kind of like in that shitty situation? Text a friend. If you haven't already, like with any kind of booking that you're doing with any type of client, make sure that there's one person who knows where you are at all times. Make sure that there's one person um, that you can tell, just send a text. I'm going to this booking for this many hours. This is their name. This is the address. And if you don't hear from me by this time, um, send help, (laughs) you know, um, And so at least you have one person that you can check in with if you're in the middle of a booking where they're starting to act in a way that makes you feel unsafe. You know, you can go to the bathroom, text someone and be like, I'm really nervous. Here's what they've done. What do you think? Do you think I should just like book it out the door? (laughs) Because you have to do what you got to do to survive. And if you already have the money in your purse, run run just run don't look back so to ask you a little bit about the book writing process you kind of said before that you would come home from a call or um you know a time at work and jot down um everything that had happened but in terms of making the entire book like how long was that process from start to finish how did you go about it yeah okay so i'd say that the first edition of Modern Horror, which came out in 2018, it took a couple years um, as far as like the writing and then uh, all the photos because um, it's a collaboration between me and my collaborator, Nicole Bazain. Um, so for that first edition, like there was, we were pretty much doing it ourselves. We we're generally self-published, but we were working in collaboration with this small art book publisher here in Toronto called Impulse B. But we had very little oversight. And we were just kind of like working at our own schedule. And it it took, yeah, I would say it took like a year or two years from start to finish to produce this like self-published work. Um, we also did a Kickstarter to raise money for the printing for that. Um, and then we sold out of those copies, which we printed only a thousand of. And then um, <laughs> casual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, Just bo- your book, your face, plastic. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yes, I am pretty, but only when we date. <laughs> <laughs> Call me. Um, <laughs> Open relationship. You heard it for him first. Didn't hear that. Open. Lots more pictures where that came from. Um, 
So yeah, then, oh my gosh. So 2022, I think it was 2020, 2021. Um, we kind of got this sort of like deus ex machina, like connection to the president of Penguin Random House Canada who like saw um, the short film Modern Horror based on the book and then wanted to get in touch with us about the book itself because we'd been hoping to get like a second edition printed with a regular publisher and she read the ebook in like a weekend and was like yeah I you know want to publish the expanded edition of this and so then that took um at least another year time is a bit fucky in my head but like it's like a year and a half two years to do the next one including yeah all the writing all the photos so that like by the time this like second edition which is the first part is the original like um, self-published book and then the second half is you know my strip club memoirs which were previously unpublished um yeah that took a few years and came out last year in may it takes so long it takes so long <laughs> yeah and then you also did the audiobook like version two i have listening to your voice <laughs> um but how was that process like and then i'm terrible at reading out loud so i can only imagine what a daunting and time-consuming process that is to like get it word for word, get the voices, like not stumble, like, yeah. What was, what was that like? I personally loved the experience. I, I like reading out loud. I do like the sound of my own voice, uh, for better or worse. (laughs) I (laughs) like, it took a week, um, every single day of going into the studio in Toronto, um, and working with a sound engineer, hired by Penguin Random House, as well as a book director, like an audiobook director who was listening in remotely. And yeah, I just started from the beginning and I listened to an audiobook prior to the recording to just sort of like help me get into the headspace of it. Um, I actually listened to uh, Sarah Polly's audiobook um, run towards the danger, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, it's in part, it's about all sorts of things, but in part it's about, um, her experience with a brain injury. Um, that was like really, really fucked up and also her experience in the entertainment industry. And she had recorded it at the same studio and the director I was working with had, had also done that audiobook. So it gave me like a lot to sort of like prepare myself for. And at the end of the day, reading an audiobook is just a performance. Um, and I like performing. So, um, I had a good time with it. And luckily the director was like into me putting on voices and singing a song at one point. And (laughs) (laughs) if I could get loose on stage, like (laughs) it'd get get weird. Oh. Yeah, it's a super fun experience. I loved recording that audiobook and I I love hearing people's feedback on that. It, yeah, it was so it was great. I love it. Yeah, I it sounds like my worst nightmare, but you sound amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, also, you got some very exciting news recently. Um, you are making a modern horror feature film. Yeah. So what was the process of that getting approved? Because I feel like it's so difficult to have sex work stories told by sex workers, especially on like mainstream platforms. So making a movie, generally speaking, sex work or not sex work, like is such a complicated gate kept process like if you want to create a feature film that's like properly funded in Canada, it's just an absolute fucking nightmare. Like at every stage of the way you're being presented with obstacles and you have to be kind of irrational, I'll say, to pursue a path of, of movie making in general. But thankfully, years into this process, we have been able to secure funding from various like granting bodies in Ontario and um, yeah, like have Crave, Crave has signed on to distribute it or sorry, they have broadcasting rights. So they'll, it'll be available on Crave once it's done. Um, It takes so long to do. There's so much work that goes into these things, so much pitching, so many like meetings that go nowhere, like so much unbelievable work. And I will say that like, I am a co-writer of the script. I am a producer. So I'm one of the key members of the team, which is really important when you're telling sex worker stories. I think like, if you're going to make a movie about a sex worker, I think it's important to have a sex worker be on the team that is creating it. Um, but Nicole Bazain, who is my collaborator and also the director of this film and the primary screenwriter on it, she's done an unbelievable amount of work to get us to this stage. And so, you know, I would say that, like, if there are any sex workers listening who want to pursue a path where they can tell stories like this, tell their own story, help tell other people's stories, like, find a core group of collaborators that believe in the project and will stick with you um, to see it actually come to fruition because you will be the people will try to stop you every step of the way. And you have to really truly believe in what you're doing to keep going. And I, I can't believe that we finally got to this point where we can like make the announcement public that this is really happening and it's going to be on crave and people are going to be able to just like watch it. It's so exciting. And I'm thrilled. Yeah, that's uh, like, I feel like that's such a massive accomplishment. Like, congratulations. Yes. Congratulations. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you. Thank so you. I don't know how much you can tell us about it right now in terms of like storyline. Will it follow the book? Will it kind of deviate? What can you tell us? Okay, so I can tell you that it is a hybrid documentary. So it's going to be um, interview um and reenactment but also a bit of like present day uh narrative so like once we start shooting we're gonna just sort of like film as I'm doing like I'm you know working on various projects with various people and it's important to like show other sex workers in the film and get their narratives in it as well because like my experience is pretty unique as 
every single sex worker's experience is unique in the industry. So yeah, like I will be reenacting stories from modern horror. Um, we're going to be interviewing my mom, you know, so she can talk about that contract. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll have like, uh, yeah, some of the real people in the book will be in the film to be interviewed. Um, like some of my clients and <laughs> oh my god that's amazing it's gonna be sore there where's max yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't talk to max anymore <laughs> yeah put max on trial yeah but yeah like i i'm really excited about the film and you know i guess that's probably all i can say right now <laughs> yeah no thank you so much for sharing that with us that's Oh, I'm so excited. Um, uh, last before last question before we uh, move on to the listener questions. Um, do you have a timeline for when this is going to be coming out? A, like debut date? Is that, do you know? So we're aiming to shoot um, in the fall of this year. So fingers crossed, if all goes according to plan, this will be out next year. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So like quick on the, on the roll then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you this time next year and we'll do a little interview about that. <laughs> Wonderful. Perfect. All right. Um, so as per usual, we got a ton of listener questions and we have had a very long chat with you, which has been amazing, but we have to kind of narrow them down a little bit. Um, so we're going to start with the first one here. What's something you didn't expect to experience in life as a sex worker? Hmm. Hmm. That's a tough one. Didn't expect to experience. What, what do you two think? What's something like, I need some examples. Like <laughs> very best from your books. <laughs> Like I'm thinking what, like the, did I not expect the like beautiful friendships that I have with all my sex worker friends? Like, I, I, I think like something I realized recently that I didn't expect was um, like, I've always had a very dirty sense of humor and my mom has a very dirty sense of humor. And I realized that I think I maybe got into sex work just to hang out with other people with really dirty senses of humor. <laughs> my people <laughs> exactly like people because like yeah like I've always been very uh comfortable like uh you know with my body and with like farting and burping and like just being kind of gross and then if you spend any time in a strip club locker room you realize like everyone is exactly the same way true just straight baby wiping themselves as they look you dead in the eye <laughs> Yeah, or like popping ingrown hairs in their bush, like right in front of you while they're having a conversation. I'm like, I'm in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> My home. <laughs> yes. All right. Next listener question here. And you have gone over, obviously, some of them in your uh, book. But what are some of your funniest bookings or like mo maybe most embarrassing bookings or... Oh, geez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I have talked about this, but I, I also like made like a stunning revelation recently where like, um, my patrons, 
like I, I realized what they had in common is that they like to put on voices and that like being in public with a full grown man who is um, doing like a stewy accent or like pretending to be. <laughs> Why are men so embarrassing? <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it. Like it really makes me laugh, but it also totally mortifies me. Yeah. <laughs> But then in like the same breath, I'm also doing impressions. And so like, we're just like being silly together. But when like, it's funny when you do it. It's cute and sexy when we do it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. Luckily, I haven't had any like super embarrassing or, well, okay, no. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Read the second, second book. book. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. Before we let you go, we have our three rapid fire questions we ask all of our guests. The first one, what is one thing on your sexual bucket list that you haven't done yet but want to try? I want to get spit roasted by two men that I love. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck in your fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The big part of the fantasy is finding a lovable man. But, uh... <laughs> No, I know it's really difficult, but that's something like I haven't actually been able to do. So that is something I would genuinely love. Yes. But if you're open to uh, women with strap-ons, <laughs> stop it. I, I am. <laughs> Call me. Dream team, baby. <laughs> um, the second rapid fire question on the opposite end, what is one thing you've tried sexually that you probably wouldn't do again? Hmm. Oh my God. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I feel like, like with these questions, I'm like, what are examples? Like, Oh, what if I, maybe I'm just like not, um, having enough adventurous sex to know what I don't like. Um, what have I? I've been to a lot of play parties. Um, and generally, I like them. I'm starting to get a little bit warmer to them. I've been in the past a little bit like the frigid woman who just stands by the snack table and just eats all night. Um, a frigid whore, if you will. That's right. That's me. <laughs> And, um, I don't yeah I don't want to go to play parties anymore where everyone's just doing drugs and um, you know fucking really hard I don't want to do that anymore ever again yeah that's one there you go <laughs> that's fair and the last listener question here if you had the world's attention for 30 seconds what would you say rapid fire Rapid fire, that's our question. Not your question. <laughs> JK. <laughs> I would say um, it's time to listen to sex workers. It's time to hear our stories. It's time to give us the floor. Um, it's time for us to determine our own destinies and uh, call the shots. And we want power. We want money. We want influence. And 
it's about time for us to take all of the resources we have access to and do everything we can to uplift each other. And um, yeah, and I have hope for the future. Good. That was beautifully said. <laughs> okay, Andrea, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Instagram primarily at Wiener Woman. That's W E E N E R Woman. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I don't really use it very much uh, because it kind of scares me. So. <laughs> mostly as a time suck not because of anything that I mean there's sketchy things that happen there but mostly I just don't have time to get sucked into stuff but I get sucked into Instagram pretty regularly so that's where I'm at um and I'm also on OnlyFans if anyone's interested um I'm at Wiener Woman VIP uh come support me there and check out my butthole (laughs) And but, your books. And books. Uh, and books. That's right. <laughs> and as always, you can find us on Instagram at 50 plus a tip pod or email at 50 plus a tip at gmail.com. Find the DMs with questions, comments. We love getting them. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. It has been an absolute pleasure. Love you. Love your books. Love what you're doing. Can't wait to see you on Crave. Have a wonderful week and happy whoring. Bye. Bye.